Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hey guys, have you ever had a day where your whole computer and technology situation basically takes a crap on you and you just want to cry all day and all night? Well, that was me earlier this week. So this episode was supposed to have Tori and I both on it. This is Torella, by the way. And my computer um, is an older MacBook and it is no longer keeping up with the demands of as much audio content as I'm putting it through. And apparently yesterday while we were recording, it decided that it didn't have enough memory to record the way that I was normally recording and it just shut our microphones off and recorded only using my computer microphone and Tori's like across the room from me basically. So you can't hear her at all in our original recording. Um, No matter what I did to it, it just wasn't happening. So I am going to still relay the information because I want to get this information out there and I don't want you guys to miss an episode. But just know that uh, Tori is with us in spirit. She had to work the rest of this week. We couldn't get a time to record down. So I'm just going to give you the information on my own. So this is going to be a revisiting of the Rodney Reed case. Obviously, if you've seen the news, he is set to be executed on November the 20th of this year, 2019, depending on when you listen to this. So um, hopefully, if you listen to this a long time from now, that execution did not happen. But what we're doing now is just trying to get the information out there, raise awareness uh, about this situation. Of course, there's lots of other wrongful convictions out there, but um, we wanted to revisit this case. So if you are not familiar with the case at all, you can either go back and listen to episode seven of this podcast or Sword and Scale also did a two-part series on it. It's episodes 42 and 43 of their their show, I believe, and um, phenomenal. It's got lots of audio from probably from the documentary that you can find on YouTube about it, but they brought in a lot of audio pieces as well. So it's a really, really great uh, coverage of the case. If you do not know much about the case, or even if you do and you need a refresher, I'm going to give you an overview first. And then what I wanted to do with this episode, since we did already lay out the case in episode seven in more detail, 
is to go point by point on some of these pieces of evidence that ended up convicting Rodney and look at them from the perspective of the medical experts who have re-examined the case and the new evidence that's come out since he's been convicted that really show the implausibility and impossibility of the case having gone down the way that the prosecution alleged and the way that convicted Rodney Reed. So, again, it's not going to be the entire case laid out in chronological order. We're really just going to kind of pinpoint some of those big pieces and uh, what we now know about them. The overview of the case, though, is that on April the 23rd, 1996, Stacy Stites was found murdered. She was 19 years old at the time. She was living with her fiancé, Jimmy Fennell, in Giddings, Texas. They were getting ready to have their wedding. She worked at a grocery store called the HEB, and she was working a lot of overtime at that point to pay for the wedding. So she had to pay for her wedding dress and some jewelry, so she's working a lot. She had taken the very early morning shift because it paid more per hour than the regular shift. So at this time, she had to be at work at 3.30 in the morning, typically. And she lived about 30 miles from the store. So she had quite a drive. And part of her route took her through the Lost Pines Forest, which was reported to have creeped her out, especially like early morning or middle of the night, however you look at three o'clock in the morning. And she really didn't enjoy that part of the drive, but it was necessary to get through. So she really skipped breakfast. She rushed as much as she could just to get through that part where she could get to a more populated area and feel more comfortable. On that morning, April the 23rd, she was supposed to be at work at 3.30 as normal. And that morning she did not arrive. So her co-worker waited a while for her to come in. She was never late. So this was highly unusual for Stacy, especially at 19 years old, very responsible young woman. Um, She was not ever late for work, and that morning she was, so her co-worker waited a little while, and then he finally called Carol, which is Stacy's mom, to let her know that Stacy had not shown up for work. Carol then calls Jimmy, Stacy's fiance, who lives in the same apartment complex as Carol, and he says, she's not here. She must have left for work. The truck's not here. Can I use your car to go drive around and look for her? So he goes, he's driving around, he's looking, he doesn't find her. Meanwhile, while all of this is happening, a police officer finds the truck that Stacy and Jimmy shared abandoned at Bastrop High School, and near it was half of a belt, which at that point he didn't think anything of. Around three o'clock that afternoon, nobody has heard from Stacy still, nobody has seen her, and somebody finds a body along the side of the road and it is confirmed to be Stacy Stites. So they do obviously crime scene investigation. They take samples, DNA samples, all of these things. They run things through the system. At first they don't get a match. Almost a year goes by of them quote unquote investigating the case. And Initially, Jimmy Fennell, her fiancé, was a suspect, but he was subsequently ruled out. They did process the truck that was found and then a few days later returned it to Jimmy's possession, which he subsequently sold immediately. And about a year later, they get a DNA match with Rodney Reed. Rodney Reed, at this point, has been 
at least accused of, if not arrested for, other sexual assaults, which is why his DNA is now in the system. And he comes into the police station for questioning, uh, believing it to be about a drug charge that he had against him. And they ask him if he knows Stacy Stites. And he says no, that he does not. And then he's confronted with the fact that his DNA in the form of sperm was found inside Stacy's body. So how do you explain that if you don't know her? So now it looks quite suspicious that he has been the person to have raped and murdered her. He goes to trial. His defense team presents no witnesses. They really don't do much to dispute the DNA evidence. Uh, he did explain that he and Stacy were having a secret relationship, but he didn't want to get involved in the investigation. So he tried to stay out of it, which is why he denied knowing her. Um, but the jury did not believe that claim and he was convicted and sentenced to death. Since then, and, th and that was in 1998, maybe, that he was convicted. So since then, he's filed several appeals. Um, he has had a couple of additional hearings. They're trying to get more DNA testing done and things like that. And he has had stays of execution. He has had other execution dates scheduled, which have been delayed. So this time we're looking at November the 20th, which at the time of this recording is six days away. November 20th, 2019. It's a date that Rodney Reed is dreading, according to his family. I know that I'm innocent. Reed is on death row, set to be executed for a crime they say he did not commit. He was sent to jail for the murder and rape of Stacy Stites in 1996. But his lawyers now say new evidence in this case exonerates Reed. Anyone who examines that, we think they've come to the conclusion that Mr. Reed is innocent or at a minimum that there are far too many questions. So on Tuesday at TSU's Thurgood Marshall School of Law, there was a last minute push to present his case and get more people to hear his story. His brother, Roderick Reed, was there. He says he spoke to his brother two weeks ago. He's very optimistic. Of course, you know, he's scared because this is reality, but he's feeling very hopeful that uh, he will get to stay. We will have chance to exonerate him. Reed has gained support from celebrities like Dr. Phil, Oprah, and Kim Kardashian West, but his family continues to fight for his freedom every minute they get. We are just trying to gain more support. We have um, over 3 million signatures. Over 300,000 faith leaders have signed a petition. We have an amicus letter, which made history never been done before by anybody on death row. Reed says this has been a very trying, stressful, and life-changing ordeal. We got in this um, situation with solely trying to prove my brother's innocence and trying to get him home. But over the years, we realized there's a thousand more Rodney Reeds out there just like this. So now let's get into the points of evidence. So if you go on the Innocence Project's website, they do have a PDF of the exhibits that they are using, uh, which consist of affidavits, studies, things like that, that they're using to disprove the prosecution's case and show that Rodney Reed could not have committed this crime. One of the sticking points is the time of death. In the original trial, in the original investigation, investigation um the time of death was recorded at 3 a.m thereabouts the medical director dr bayardo had recorded it 
he said 3 a.m., give or take a couple of hours either way. So then we have the time frame of 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. Again, the 1 a.m. even, well, let's, let me back up for a second. Let's talk about what Jimmy Finnell says happened the night before. And Carol, Stacy's mother, corroborates this. Jimmy got home around 8 o'clock that night from some kind of a practice, softball, baseball, something like that. And at that point, Stacy had been at her mom's apartment. When Jimmy got home, they went back to their apartment. And that's where they stayed for the remainder of the night. He says that Stacy went to bed around 11 p.m. He went to bed after her. Her alarm goes off at like 2.30. He doesn't hear it. He keeps sleeping. The next thing he knows, he wakes up. Carol's calling him. Stacy can't be found. But by his admission, he is with her until 2.30 in the morning. So if we look at a possible time of death at even 1 a.m., if we're, if we're even using Dr. Bayardo's estimation of time of death, even 1 a.m., Jimmy's with her. So it's important to look at him pretty closely here. He was a police officer with Bastrop County, though, at that point. I would call it a conflict of interest. If we go through the Innocence Project's reports on this, the affidavits that they've put together since this trial, first we'll look at Dr. Bayardo's signed affidavit. So this is well after the trial took place. What he says about the time of death is that he estimated the time of death at 3 a.m. on April 23, 1996. Estimates regarding the time of death are just that, estimates. And the accuracy of the estimate is subject to various factors as outlined by Dr. Riddick in paragraphs 10 through 13 of his April 14, 2006 affidavit. My estimate of time of death again was only an estimate and should not have been used at trial as an accurate statement of when Ms. Stites died. As I testified, I am unaware of how long it was between the time of death and the time her body was brought to the medical examiner's office. If the prosecuting attorneys had advised me that they had intended to use my time of death estimate as a scientifically reliable opinion of when Ms. Stites died, I would have advised them not to do so. In my professional opinion, pinpointing a precise time of exactly when Ms. Stites died would not have been and remains impossible. Now we have Dr. Michael Bodden's affidavit. He has a few notes about the state of the crime scene, the state of Stacy's body, and how that relates to the time of death estimate. He says, Ms. Stites' partially clothed body was found lying face up in brush a number of yards from an unpaved road at about 3 p.m. the same day. Prominent lividity was noted on the front non-dependent parts of her body by responding sheriff's department officers. This inappropriate lividity is clearly documented in scene photographs. A homicidal ligature was present, mark was present around her neck, and the ligature, the remainder of the belt portion seen near the truck, was nearby. Lividity develops by the gravitational settling of red blood cells while still in blood vessels in the lower dependent portions of the body after death, causing a maroon-type discoloration of the skin. The intensity and extent of lividity present on Ms. Stites' body demonstrates that she would have lain face down after she was dead for more than four or five hours in order for this lividity to remain after she was turned over when she was placed on her back in the brush. This lividity demonstrates that Ms. Stites was dead before midnight on April 22nd when she was alone with Mr. Fennell. So what they're saying is 
Stacy was found on her back, but she had fixed lividity on the front side of her body, which means that she would have had to have been laying, like they said, on her stomach or face down for several hours. If she, in fact, as Jimmy states, left for work at the normal time that she does around three o'clock in the morning, the truck abandoned was seen by the police officer at the high school at 523 a.m. That's not enough time even for that lividity to have been present if she was alive still at 3 a.m. So what they're saying is she would have already had to, and we know she was dumped before 523. So then we have to back up to that she would have had to been laying face down for several hours before that. So now we're getting into that midnight area because there would have had to been enough time for her to be laying face down to get that lividity mark and then transported using the truck and the truck already having been dumped. So the 3 a.m. time of death does not fit with that. Dr. Werner Spitz makes a similar conclusion uh, and he talks about that lividity. He also talks about the mucus-like fluid near the passenger floor of the truck and blanching, which is areas where blood is pressed out of the skin on the fingers as if pressed into something after death. He talks about how the presence of the lividity in the non-dependent areas makes it medically and scientifically impossible that Ms. Stites was killed between 3 and 5 a.m. on the date in question. Stites could not have been both murdered and dumped between the hours of 3 to 5 a.m. on April 23, 1996, and remained undisturbed in that spot until her body was discovered around 3 p.m. because the lividity observed in the non-dependent areas would have taken at least four to five hours to develop. He also goes on to state that the medico-scientific analysis of the lividity that he is discussing here was never addressed at trial. They also talk about the rigor that Stacy's body was in, and he says that Dr. Bayardo described slight re- residual rigor at autopsy conducted at 1.30 p.m. on April 24th after the body was refrigerated since approximately 11 p.m. on April 23rd. Rigor is seen in the crime scene video, but the arms are easily placed down from above Stite's head as she is about to be put in the body bag before sundown on April 23rd, 96. This movement of the arm shows passing rigor. Likewise, slight residual rigor after refrigeration at the Emmy's office is consistent with passing rigor at the time the body is filmed in the video. Rigor is markedly temperature dependent. In warm weather, rigor mortis progresses faster. In cold weather, it progresses more slowly. The average temperature on April 23rd was the mid-60s. Taking this temperature into consideration... Passing rigor, as depicted in the video, is consistent with death of about 20 to 24 hours prior to the video. A period of 15 hours, as estimated by Dr. Bayardo, would not allow for such movement without having broken their rigidity. So what he's saying is the rigor mortis that happens after death, there's a peak area where the body is much more stiff, and then it starts to settle a little bit more where it it becomes a little bit easier to manipulate further after death. And what he is saying is noted in the video that passing rigor, that easier manipulation is seen. So there has to have been more time that has passed since death than what they originally estimated because it takes longer for that to happen. And you have to take into account the temperature 
and all those kind of things. So once you do take all of that into account, he's saying that there's just not enough time from their estimated time of death. My review shows evidence of decomposition that is not consistent with the time of death at 3 a.m. on April 23rd. The body is described as having green discoloration, which can be seen in the video. The appearance of the breasts after the bra is removed shows gas formation. The abdomen does not appear flat. There is skin slippage in several places. What is described at autopsy as postmortem burns in the face, breasts, and other areas is also likely skin slippage in which the top layer of the skin has dried. What has been described as petechia in the scalp are none other than small torn blood vessels in the process of reflection of the scalp. Brown fluid running from the mouth and nose across the right cheek is decomposition fluid and is not described in the autopsy report. Internal organs also show evidence of decomposition. What Dr. Bayardo describes as congestion in the lungs is actually decomposition. The heart is flabby and the blood is liquid after liquefaction, which is part of the decomposition process. Brain swelling is also part of the decomposition. This amount of decomposition supports a post-mortem interval of about 20 to 24 hours before the film and photographs. Now we're going to get to the lifespan of sperm in the body after intercourse. According to testimony in the trial that sent Rodney Reed to death row, the state presented evidence that the sperm found inside Stacy's body could not have been present for more than 24 hours. And that's at the time of the examination. So what they're saying is that would have been basically on her drive to work, that it had to have been deposited, could not have been before that. And according to Rodney, he had seen Stacy the day before that. That would have been the 21st into the 22nd, late that night, early the next morning. And that's when it would have been deposited because he said they slept together that night. The expert witnesses from the crime lab testified, both of them, and they quoted a study that they referenced that said that, that, that they had never seen intact sperm inside of a body that had been deposited more than 24 hours before. So they're saying the time frame that that sperm had to have been deposited would have had to be at the time that she was killed, and it's Rodney's that's there, so it's got to be Rodney that killed her, basically. Later, the lab director came out and said that Karen Blakely, who said that it couldn't have been, you know, more than about 24 hours before, that she misstated the science and that the paper she cited actually confirms that Reed's intact sperm could have been found up to three days after intercourse. Megan Clement also testified to the same thing. She said that in her experience of 10 years examining thousands of rape kits, she had never seen intact sperm more than 24 hours old. Her leader or director of her lab now admits that this testimony was in error. And they also state that studies have found intact sperm on vaginal swabs taken 72 to 144 hours after intercourse. So we now know that it is possible for that sperm to have been there even if they had had sex, consensual sex, days before. Another issue with the sperm is that it was found inside Stacy's, like with the vaginal swab, 
but they did also do a rectal swab and they found a, a little bit of DNA there too. And there's a few different ways that that could be there, but at the trial, they made that to be that she was sodomized. And that, and part of that was because, and, and Dr. Spitz and the other doctors will say this too, part of the natural part of decomposition of the body is that your muscles relax and the rectum, that area is all controlled by muscle and it relaxes too. So what happened was in the autopsy, they did see that it was distended. It looked swollen and they determined that that was because of sexual assault and that the DNA that they found on it, not in it, on it, was because she had been sodomized. So what the doctors are now saying, now Dr. Bayardo believes that she was sexually assaulted there, but he does not believe that it was with a human body part. He believes it was with a rod-like instrument because they did not find any sperm inside that area. They only found outside. So he thinks that it was with something such as a police baton. Um, Now, he cannot know that that's what it is, but he says it was a rod-like instrument and that's what he uses as his frame of reference. The, like, Dr. Spitz and Dr. Riddick believe that the state of that area of her body was simply due to the relaxation of the muscles that naturally occur after the body is has begun the decomposition process. And because the crime scene was not handled appropriately, they actually did the swabs there at the crime scene versus waiting until they were at the medical examiner's office. So because of that, they said that that lends things to leak more and kind of have transfer of some of this DNA. So it could very well have been when they took that vaginal swab that some fluids leaked and then got, you know, from there to the backside area. So that's a possibility as well. But from what the evidence shows, it was only present on the rectal swab, not the anal swab. So they don't believe that she was sodomized at this point. During the trial, though, they made a big deal about that. They alleged that she was, and they used that DNA as evidence of such. And pictures. They blew up pictures. I mean, (laughs) just what the family had to go through to have to look at that and, like, you know, I get that there's going to have to be crime scene photos and things like that, but it just seemed like they really overdid these photos, and it didn't really seem like it was necessary. It seemed just unnecessary and for a shock factor. You can state these things, and that's probably enough for the jury, but to have to blow those photos up for everybody to see, it just it just seemed unnecessary. All right, what about the relationship between Rodney and Stacy? At the trial, it was alleged that they did not know each other by Rodney's own admission. Okay, so then how do we explain the fact that his DNA is on her, right? Now we have multiple witnesses that have come forward that say that they did know that Stacy and Rodney were having a relationship, one of which is Alicia Slater, who worked with Stacy at the HEB. She says that she met Stacy when she came to work at the Bastrop HEB 
She was very friendly and close to my age. Sometimes when we were working at the same time, we would eat lunch together in the break room. On one occasion, when Stacy and I were eating together in the break room, she talked to me about her relationship with her fiancé. She was talking about her engagement ring and that she was not excited to be getting married. She told me that she was sleeping with a black guy named Rodney and that she didn't know what her fiancé would do if he found out. She, she commented that she had to be careful. I was taken aback by this because I didn't know Stacy that well and was surprised that she would confide in me. I cannot remember when this conversation took place, but was it was within a few months of Stacy's murder and could have been only a few weeks before. I did not know Jimmy Fennell or Rodney Reed at the time and have never met either of them since. I remember that some people at the HEB thought that Stacy's fiance Jimmy Fennell committed the murder. I didn't tell people what Stacy had told me because I didn't want to get involved. I knew that Jimmy Fennell was a cop and didn't trust the police in Bastrop. After I graduated high school, I wanted to get out of town. If I had said something to accuse a police officer, I was afraid there would be repercussions for my family. She then goes on to say that she knew that Rodney got convicted of the murder, but she didn't really follow the case. And she just assumed and thought that the relationship between Rodney and Stacy was common knowledge and that everybody knew about it. So she didn't think that her information was necessarily important because she thought it was like the same thing that everybody else would have already told police. So I think in her mind, she's thinking everybody knows that they have a relationship and if he's been charged and convicted with it, then he must have done it. So she just kind of went on about her business and later saw a Facebook post about, you know, Rodney and the fact that they believed he was wrongfully convicted and that people didn't know that he and Stacy were having a relationship. And so she ended up providing that information to the Innocence Project. Then we have Leroy Ibarra. He also worked at the HEB with Stacy. He says that there were several times I would see Stacy talking with a young black man inside the store. I did not know his name, but I would notice that her demeanor changed whenever he came around. She seemed happy to see him and would be in a good mood. I remember this man because sometimes they were close enough that I got a very good look at him. I remember him because I used to think that this was not a very attractive black man and that she, on the other hand, was a very pretty young lady with a good personality. I couldn't understand what she saw in him, but I guessed that if it made her happy, nothing else mattered. I knew that Stacy was engaged to a police officer at the same time that she was seeing the black man, and I recall that a few times Stacy's fiance entered the store to visit her, she would become a nervous wreck. I know there were times that Stacy would deliberately hide so that she didn't have to talk to him. I just thought that was a very strange relationship. He goes on to say that at the time of Rodney Reed's trial or prior to the trial, nobody from the prosecution or the defense team ever contacted him, and if anyone had asked him, he would have definitely told them that he had seen Stacy and Rodney together beforehand. We also have the affidavit of Buddy Horton, who is Stacy's cousin, and he states that in 1995, he drove to a Dairy Queen and he saw Stacy and Rodney walking out of the Dairy Queen together, and he yelled for her just to say hi to her, and she pretty much ignored him and, like, booked it, but he said that she and Rodney both heard him because they both turned around and looked, and then they just kind of kept going and didn't say anything to him. He says, seeing Stacy with a black man did not surprise me because I remembered what my parents told me about her dating and associating with black men. Stacy, however, was shocked. She seemed embarrassed when she saw us, and she quickly left with the black man without introducing me. Stacy and the black man got into a darker colored car that Stacy was driving, and they drove off without speaking to me or my children. 
I told my father of this incident, but to me it was not a big deal at the time because I had been told that Stacy associated with black men. Sometime after Stacy's death, I remember seeing pictures of Rodney Reed on the news in the newspaper after he became a suspect in the death of my cousin. Rodney Reed is the same man I saw Stacy with at the Dairy Queen in 1995. I understand that the appeals courts have previously said that there were no credible witnesses that would testify as to having seen Rodney and Stacy together. I would have testified to my experience at the Dairy Queen in 1995 at trial, but no one ever approached me to do so. Since then, I've told other members of my family that I would have told law enforcement and prosecutors the same had they interviewed me or shown any interest. And remember here, this is in the 90s in Texas, so there's a lot of there's a lot of racial division and of course we look at that and say it's ridiculous um in in our eyes it's Stacy was just seeing somebody maybe that wasn't her fiance but the color of his skin doesn't matter at that time it was a big deal to these people so um you know just letting you know i'm just reading the affidavits this is not how I would have worded any of this, but that's how uh, they are referring to things. Now we have the crime scene investigation, which I talked a little bit about before, but the crime scene investigation revealed many points that would directly contradict the state's theory that Stacy was abducted and murdered at 3 a.m. on her way to work on April 23, 1996. And Dr. Leroy Riddick did an examination of the autopsy and the crime scene investigation and he even like went down to like timestamp the crime scene video and point out things that did not line up with their own time of death estimates. One of the things he talks about is how difficult it is for a death investigator to pinpoint the time of death. There's just so many factors that go into it. But he talks about the many different methods that you can use to really kind of get the most accurate time of death reading that you can. And one of them is, first of all, the protocol that all of the modalities, with the exception of analysis of the vitreous humor, need to be systematically determined at the crime scene by the medical examiner, the scientist with the most experience in making these determinations. In this case, the medical examiner did not attend the scene, and none of the investigators, including the law enforcement officers and forensic technicians, systematically examined the body for rigor, liver, and temperature. The vitreous was never analyzed. And what he's talking about there is the fluid inside of the eye. And that's one way that you can determine time of death. And they didn't do that at all. And furthermore, all of these things should have been noted. Like some of the law enforcement officers, like again, you know, we talked about Dr. Spitz talking about the rigor mortis and stuff like that. They did notice it or just mention, like, in one of the reports, slight residual rigor mortis and things like that. But what they should have done is make that determination of what stage of rigor mortis it was. And they didn't. They just kind of noted that rigor was present. So they're not giving that stage, which then kind of drills down even further how long the body needs to be in decomposition for that stage to have started. Despite the absence of systematic investigation of these key elements, much can be derived from a review of the existing record, especially the videotape of the crime scene investigation. The first officers at the scene from the Bastrop Police Department made no scene report. Lieutenant David Campus Jr. from the Bastrop Sheriff's Office, who arrived at the scene sometime not specified after 3.11 p.m. on April 23rd, 
made the recorded observation in a typewritten report that the body had marked lividity and rigor mortis had set in. He did not specify any muscle groups or the intensity of the stiffness, which would have indicated whether the rigor was beginning, reached its peak, or waning. He did not test the lividity to ascertain if it blanched, that is, whether the color dissipated with pressure and did not return, indicating that, in general, the body has been in that position for several hours. Texas Ranger L.R. Wardlow, who entered the scene at 5.43 p.m., made observation about the position and clothing on the body, but nothing about liver, rigor, or temperature. However, Wardlow observed a greenish discoloration in parts of the body, including under each breast. The timestamp on the video reads 16.19, which would indicate filming began at 4.19 p.m. However, a report by Texas Ranger Rocky Wardlow states that the filming began at 5.16 p.m. The video is not continuous and ends sometime after dark. The timestamp at the end of the video shows 20.22, which is 8.22 p.m. A note from DPS crime scene investigator Karen Blakely to the medical examiner's office discussing the completed collection of evidence gives the time of 8.15 p.m. Ranger Wardlow indicates the scene was released at 8.55 p.m. The medical examiner's office records indicate the body was received at 10 o'clock p.m. Based on this information, it appears that the video documents the condition of the body over a three to four hour period. He goes on to say that Dr. Bayardo, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy in his trial testimony, gave really vague answers to things that should have really been more specific. So what he would say was, based on the changes that occur after death in the body, he opined that an estimation of the time of death being around 3 o'clock a.m., give or take one or two hours, making it between 1 and 5. So instead of specifying anything other than based on changes that occur, that's a wide blanket statement rather than here's her specific lividity, here was her specific body temperature, here was the specific analysis of the vitreous humor, here are, is the specific intensity and location of muscle stiffness and rigor in the body to determine whether it was beginning at peak or subsiding. All of these things. And, and instead of determining and, and laying out any of those individual things, he just says, based on changes that occur in the body, I think it was about 3 a.m. Done. End of story. And Dr. Riddick goes on to really, really detail all of those different things. He goes into great detail about the rigor mortis. He goes into great detail about the lividity. And I'll link to this exhibit PDF so that you can, you know, look through it yourself if you want to get more information. But basically, when he goes into into great detail about which areas that he sees in the video that have lividity present or that have muscle stiffness or the intensity of the stiffness and things like that, he uses all of those things to determine that time of death of before midnight on April the 22nd, which we know Jimmy Fennell, by his own admission, was home alone with Stacy. And furthermore, Jimmy Fennell later went on to be arrested and convicted for a sexual assault of a woman while he was on duty. He served, I think, about 10 years for that. He's been released since then. But that sexual assault occurred without any sperm. Jimmy Fennell did not ejaculate during the sexual assault. And Dr. Riddick finds that that is consistent with the sexual assault on Stacey Stites because of the fact that there was so very little sperm of Rodney's left inside the body 
that it 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 would have been older than that 20 to 24 hour mark and that the sperm actually wasn't completely intact it wasn't the full sperm it was either just the head or the tail so it's it's not completely intact but had that sexual assault been Rodney's and had taken place that morning there should have been more and it should have been more intact but what they're saying is since there wasn't if there was a sexual assault that took place it would have been more consistent with Jimmy Fennell's sexual assault that he was arrested for which did not have any sperm present and Jimmy Fennell probably being a police officer would have known that they can test that uh Stacy's fingernails were also found to be cut so if you've got somebody who's attempting to strangle you or attacking you and you are grabbing at them and you are trying to get them away from you, you're going to end up, we all know this, with their skin cells underneath your fingernails. Between the two suspects, who knows to cut those fingernails? Is that going to be Rodney or is that going to be a police officer who routinely encounters these type of things? So... The medical examiners are finding a lot more evidence that is consistent with Jimmy Fennell than Rodney Reed. Now, here's the thing. Rodney Reed has been arrested for sexual assaults before the murder of Stacey Stites. We are not saying that he should just walk out of jail free as a bird today. If he needs to, if he was convicted of any of those other sexual assaults and he is supposed to be serving time for those, he needs to serve that time out. Um. I found reports of other sexual assaults that he had committed um, or had been accused of. I could not find anywhere that he was uh, convicted of another one. He was acquitted of one, and I don't know why that is. Like, I, I can't find the specifics of that. Was he acquitted because he didn't do it? Was he acquitted because there wasn't enough evidence? Was he acquitted on a technicality? Like, I don't know what that reason was. But he was acquitted. The others that he was accused of, I can't find any evidence that he was ever convicted of them. Um, So I don't know if he's going to serve time for them because, you know, there's statutes of limitation on those things. So if, in fact, he's got time that needs to be served for those and it's more than the time he's already served, the 22 years, 20 however some odd years that he's served already, then he needs to serve those. But we just don't believe that he he murdered Stacy Stites and therefore we don't think he should be put to death for it. So we think that the emergence of all of this new evidence, all of these other people coming forward saying that they definitely did know that Rodney and Stacy had a relationship together, like knowing these things and also knowing that the jury was under the impression that the sperm could have not been still present in Stacy's body more than 20 to 24 hours after sexual intercourse, I think that played a huge, huge role because then that puts Rodney Reed with her at her time of death rather than days before when he says that they were together. So this is something that could have changed the outcome of the trial. This is evidence that was testified to in error by medical experts who actually should not have been testifying about that at all because it's not their area of expertise. They test the stuff, but they don't, they're not the doctor who, who, who should have been quoting that, like that should have been a medical examiner or a doctor or somebody like that. So these are things that should at least warrant a new trial or at least maybe some new 
testing of evidence or something like that. So that's that's all we're saying. So you can go to freerodneyreed.com to sign the petition that's going around. Uh, we've already signed it to have them stop the execution. You can also, from that website, they've got information about how to call legislators and things like that. And remember, Rodney Reed is not the only person to potentially be put to death for a crime he didn't commit. And he's certainly not the only person that is serving time for a crime he didn't commit. Um, When I went to the Innocence Project's website, there are, I mean, just hundreds of cases. And it's terrifying. And it's sad. And no matter where you stand on the death penalty, whether you are for or against it, um, there's not anybody that I've ever met that said, I'm fine with people, the wrong person getting executed. I think even people who are staunch, like death penalty supporters would say the wrong person should never be executed. We should be 100% sure. Now, do the prosecutors, are they 100% sure? I think that they are. Um, I don't know if there was so much corruption that the DA and the prosecutor's office knew that Jimmy likely killed her and they went after Rodney anyway just to protect him. I'm not really sure because they did prosecute him for his sexual assault, but I mean, there's something. So maybe they did what they thought was completely right and at the time what their medical experts was were telling them was correct, but we know more now, and so we should use that knowledge that we have. Um, so again, it's freerodneyreed.com. You can go and sign the petition to stop his execution and uh, you know, share that website. Do whatever you can. We've got a few days left to, to get that out. Um, so this week, we put off the case that we were going to cover because we thought we needed to go ahead and share this information, and then next week we will be uh, back with another case, which is going to be Ivan Malat, the backpacker killer. So we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.